turn with me this morning to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We'll go back into our series this morning on the book of 2 Corinthians, a ministry of integrity in an upside down world. And looking this morning at the topic, this ministry we have. This ministry we have. Uh, let me ask you to do me a favor while you're finding 2 Corinthians 3. If you would also find 2 Timothy 1, because uh, in the introduction today, I'm going to read some verses to you out of 2 Timothy, and I think it will help set the table uh, for the message this morning. Uh, so find 2 Corinthians 3 and 2 Timothy 1. I hope I haven't confused you. Now, would you stand for the reading of God's Word, please? We'll read chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians. This ministry we have, Paul writes, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts, to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Father, we thank you for this ministry that we have. That it is not a ministry of the letter of the law, 
but it is a ministry of the Spirit written on human hearts. God, we thank you for the transformation that you bring about when a person believes upon Christ. The fact that if any be in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. Father, I pray that that would become so clear to us as we walk through these verses today. And if there is even one here who still has that veil covering their eyes, that you might be pleased through the power of your Spirit to lift that veil And draw them to Christ that they might be saved. Father, those who have had that experience of the new birth. May we understand the daily transformation. That you desire to continue in us. Conforming us to the image of Christ. Until that day that we see Jesus. May we always be surrendered to that process of transformation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, when we think about words of encouragement, encouraging words that we need as we think about ministry, I mean, after all, who doesn't like words of encouragement? We love those challenges that stir us up and help us to be everything that we can be in Christ. Those challenges that help us to serve better. Now, as we think of those kinds of words of encouragement, generally our minds turn to a book like the book of 2 Timothy. Because in 2 Timothy, what Paul is doing with his younger protege is he's trying to encourage Timothy. He knows that his time on earth is almost over. And so he is passing the baton to Timothy. And he's trying to stir Timothy up in this ministry that we have. I want you to listen to what he says to Timothy. In verse 6 of chapter 1 he says, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Then in verse 8 he says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Listen to what he says in verses 13 and 14. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit that is entrusted to you. Down in verse 1 of chapter 2 he says, You then, my child, be strengthened in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Then over in verse 15 he says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. 
Folks, we could go all through the book of 2 Timothy and we could find stirring words that would challenge us in regards to the ministry. But let's not forget this morning words of encouragement that Paul also has in the book of 2 Corinthians. You see, in 2 Corinthians, he's not just encouraging one man, young Timothy. He's encouraging the whole entire church body to rise to the occasion of this ministry that God has given to us. And in chapter 3, he talks about this ministry that we have. And what we learn here that it is not a ministry written on pages with ink, but it is a ministry of something that only the Spirit of God does in our hearts as he draws us to faith in Jesus Christ and he changes us. And then we bear testimony to others. They come into the fold and they too become ministers of the gospel. And what a wonderful ministry it is that God gives to a local body of believers. And so Paul is wanting the Corinthian congregation to realize what it is God has called them to do. And he's wanting them to rise to the occasion. He gives them marks of this ministry that we have. And the first mark that I want you to see of this ministry that is ours is the fact that the life of a Christian is a testimony. The life of a Christian is a testimony. He begins in verse 1 by saying, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us written not with ink but with the spirit of the living God. Now we need to continue to see chapter uh, 3 of 2 Corinthians in light of the false teachers who would customarily come right on the hills of the Apostle Paul into a city where Paul had just uh, been. They would follow Paul right on his heels and they would go into a congregation and they would preach the law instead of grace. They were known as the Judaizers. And the Judaizers could not accept the gospel of redemption that is in Christ and Christ alone. They would come in after Paul had preached Jesus and they would come in and say, you, you need to understand that you need a little bit more than Jesus. You can have Jesus, that's fine. But on top of Jesus, you also need to keep all of the regulations of the law. You need to continue to uh, observe all of the Jewish holy days and you need to uh, continue to observe the rite of circumcision. Everything that Moses commanded in the law, you need to continue to do all of that plus Christ. And so it was a Christ plus something else gospel. And as Paul said to the Galatians, that is really no gospel at all. 
Well, apparently some of these false teachers had infiltrated the Corinthians and even gotten some of the Corinthians beginning to doubt the Apostle Paul. Now, some of these false teachers could put on some pretty impressive showings. Some of them had pretty impressive credentials. And the people at Corinth had been affected by all of this. Now, the false teachers would go from place to place And since they didn't have the modes of communication back then that we have today, when they would travel around the ancient world going from congregation to congregation, these false teachers would carry with them letters of recommendation. It would be brother so-and-so commending this brother to the church and he would come there with this package of letters that in essence would be like his resume. And they would try to puff up these resumes and make them just as impressive as possible so everybody in the congregation would respect them and look up to them more. And what Paul is saying to the Corinthians, do I need to come to you with these type of letters of commendation? I certainly hope not. Paul had come to them preaching Jesus. They were saved. A church was formed. Paul was their spiritual father. And so Paul is saying, I don't need to be like these false teachers that that you don't know. That all of a sudden pop in one Sunday and they want to get up and preach. And they want to do this in the congregation and do that in the congregation. And so they come with all these letters. But I don't need that among you. You are my letter." Written not with ink on paper, but on the, uh, by the Spirit on your heart. You know me. And so what he's reminding them of here is that the life of a Christian is a testimony to others. There are other people that have impacted your life in such a way they've been spiritual mentors to you. And if they come and knock on your door and they visit you, they don't need to come with a resume. You know them. And when you go to other people that you have impacted, you don't need to go to them with the resume. They know you. And that's the special bond that we have in the body of Christ when we know one another and we serve with one another. We know one another's testimony. One another's lives and one another's testimonies has impacted our own life. And so we don't need to carry these credentials around. Now I want to ask you, who are some of your mentors that have impacted you? And who are some of the people that you have been a spiritual mentor to? And you've impacted them. Your lives are intertwined with them and their life is intertwined with you. Now Paul has just written in 2 Corinthians 2 that we are an aroma of life to some and an aroma of death to others. To those whom you've been an aroma of life, your life has been a testimony to them. You've impacted them in some way. You'll recall as Paul was writing to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul said of them that they would be his crown of rejoicing one day. You see, your life communicates. What does it say? Does your life say to others that you have difficulty trusting God? 
does your life say to others that you may not be a man of your word? Or does your life give testimony to those around you that you are the real deal and that you know Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ has changed your life and since he's changed your life, you've never been the same since. I think of a man in our congregation who was one time telling me about another man in our congregation. And he said, Pastor, you need to understand something about him. You see, this guy, they they were neighbors. And he said, I knew this guy back before he was a believer. And Pastor, I'm here to tell you, he was rough around the edges. I mean, this guy was really rough around the edges. He said, but now that he's come to faith in Christ, I can tell you, it's like I've got a brand new neighbor. I don't even know who this guy is anymore. He's different. This guy's wife came to me and she said, Pastor, I don't even know who I'm married to anymore. She said, oh, but I love it, but he's a brand new man. He's a a new husband. I've got a new husband. That's the change that Christ brings about in our lives. And you see, when that happens, our life communicates. Our life is a a testimony of what the Lord Jesus does in a human heart by the power of the Spirit. People can look at our lives and they can see the thumbprints of God all over our lives. Your life and my life is to communicate the gospel. Now, in the process of all this, what is the goal? It is that others will see and they too will be changed. Well, the Corinthians had been changed. Paul came to them preaching Jesus. Now, you'll remember what Paul said back in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He said, when I came to you, I determined to know nothing else other than Christ and Christ crucified. He said, I decided not to come to you with eloquent words or persuasive words, but I just decided to come to you in humility and meekness and preaching Jesus. And that's how Paul had gone to the Corinthian congregation. And as he came to them preaching Jesus, they heard the message and some of them believed upon Christ and were saved. It reminds me of what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 10. He says in Romans 10, 14, How then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Folks, that's why preaching can never go out of fashion in the church. It's the mechanism or the light switch that God has chosen to use. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, it's the mechanism when we preach Christ, it's foolishness to some, it's a stumbling block to others, but the preaching of the word of God and the preaching of the cross to those who are being saved is the power of God. God has chosen to use this means to reach the lost. Paul said to the Thessalonians, it was through the preaching of the word of God that the elect there at Thessalonica had surfaced. 
He said, Beloved, we know God's choice of you because when you heard the word of God, the word of God did not come to you as mere words, but it came to you in the power of the Spirit and it changed you. You turned to Christ from dead idols. Those who are chosen by God believe the message. That also helps to explain why there can be such radical differences to the preaching of the Word of God. It's as it says in Acts 13, 48, And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Preaching is the mechanism that God uses. And that is why the preacher today can preach with great anticipation and there can be a great anticipation as well in the hearts of those who already believe. It's always exciting to see during a sermon and at the end of a sermon who it is that God might touch that day. The elect come to faith and light through the preaching of the word of God. Now to the rest, the preacher's words are just foolishness and meaningless. I mean, it's kind of like sitting there and listening to Charlie Brown's teacher. Remember Charlie Brown's teacher? Womp, 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 womp. And that's the way it is with some is they're listening to the preaching of the word of God. But to the elect, the light switch comes on and they believe. Now that's why assurance of salvation ought to be so easy to detect. You see, God loves His glory and God loves His Word. And so where God takes up residence in a human heart and the person is genuinely born again, they love the things of God and they love the Scripture. They love their Bible and they love the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. They live for those moments to get back into the Word of God. That's one of the clearest assurances that a person has of whether they're born again or not. Has the light switch come on? You see, you can hear a thousand sermons. You can walk down a thousand aisles. You can be baptized in a hundred different churches. You can, you can sign a hundred different commitment cards. But has the light switch ever come on? That you were sitting there and you were listening to the word of God being taught or preached or there in your devotion time you, you had the word of God open on your lap and you were reading it and all of a sudden you saw that you were a sinner who was dead in your transgress, transgressions and sin and the wages of sin is death and the only hope of salvation is Jesus Christ and you believed upon Christ and you were born again. You were like a dead man coming out of a grave. All of a sudden you were quickened to the things of God and you became alive spiritually. That's what the Bible is talking about. When Jesus said to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, uh, unless a man is born again, he shall not see the kingdom of God. I can remember when that happened in my own life. I'd been in church all my life. I'd been a leader in the youth group all my life. And I can remember as a 19-year-old boy crying over the pages of Scripture in the parking lot at UNCC. And all of a sudden, God took that veil off of my eyes and He quickened my heart and I was changed. I became a new creation in Christ. And when that happened, the orientation of my life changed. 
the light switch comes on through the Word of God. And to the rest, the preaching of the Word of God is still just womp, 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 womp. And you leave the church and you think, what was that guy talking about? What's all that he was saying? And you just go back to life as usual. Nothing changes. Paul told the Corinthians God's choice of them had become evident. Has God's choice of you become evident? Has the light switch come on? The Corinthians listened to Paul. The light switch came on. They believed they were saved. And this change that Paul is talking about is in human hearts. It's it's not on ink and paper. It's the very same thing that Jeremiah prophesied of in Jeremiah 31. He said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law within them. And I'll write it on their hearts and I'll be their God and they shall be my people. Jeremiah spoke of God writing his laws on the heart when he gives somebody a new heart. Now in the old covenant, God's words were written on stone. Moses went up on the mountain and God gave to Moses the Ten Commandments written in stone. And now while those commandments and while all of the law that we find in the Old Testament help God's people to see how we should walk, those laws in and of themselves can never transform the human heart. You see, it took the blood of the new covenant, the blood of Jesus, to quicken the heart, to change a man's heart from the inside out. In the new covenant, the Holy Spirit takes the word of God and he transforms a man's life. Commentator Kent Hughes tells the true story of a heart surgeon and how he walked away from his own heart. Literally. He writes, Dr. Christian Bernard, the first surgeon ever to do a heart transplant, asked his patient, Dr. Philip Blayberg, would you like to see your old heart? At 8 p.m. on a subsequent evening, the men stood in a room of the hospital in Johannesburg, South Africa. Dr. Bernard went up to a cupboard, took down a glass container, and handed it to Dr. Blayberg. Inside the container was Blayberg's old heart. For a moment, he stood there stunned in silence, the first man in history ever to hold his own heart in his hands. Finally, he spoke, and for 10 minutes, he peppered Dr. Bernard with technical questions. And then he turned to take a final look at the contents of the glass container and said, So this is my old heart that caused me so many problems. He handed it back, and he turned away, and he left it forever. As Hughes writes, that is a window into what Christ does for us spiritually. We remain the same people. Everybody looks at us. 
And, and they see the same person that they saw the day before you were saved. You don't look any different, but you're a person with a new heart and you've become radically new in Christ and God has written His laws on your heart. And your life becomes a testimony to others of what Jesus Christ can do in a man's life. And then as you share the word of God with others and you share your testimony with others of what God has done in your heart, some of them will believe and as they believe, God will give them a testimony. And so the two of you together will have a testimony in ministry. And that's what the church is made up of. The church is made up of people who are supposed to have been redeemed. We've all, we're all supposed to have a testimony of when Christ changed us and made us new creations in Christ and we gather together every week and we celebrate what God has done for us that we could never do for ourselves. And we praise God, we encourage one another, we read the scripture, we, we, we teach one another, we admonish one another, and then we leave this place and we go out into the world on mission and we share our testimony that others out there might believe and come into the family of God. And then that's one more testimony that's added to ours. That's Christian ministry. That's what the church is about. And so the life of a Christian is a testimony. A second mark I want you to see of ministry, any good in a Christian's life is due to God. He says in verse 4, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now here, what Paul is once again doing is something we've seen him do already. He's setting up the contrast between our inadequacy and God's adequacy or God's sufficiency. Now folks, all through the Bible we see this, don't we? We see the saints of God proclaiming their inadequacy. I think of Moses when God said to Moses, Moses, I want you to go back to your people there in Egypt and I want you to deliver them. And Moses said, God, you've got the wrong person. Who am I? I can't speak. And God said, Moses, don't say you can't speak because I'm going to give you the words. I'm going to put my words in your mouth. What's that in your hand? Uh, a staff. I'm going to use that. And here's your brother Aaron. He's going to go and be your mouthpiece. So don't say that you can't do it because I'm going to be with you. And then I think of Gideon there on the threshing floor. Remember Gideon? The children of Israel will be, were being overrun and oppressed by the Midianites. And there Gideon is on the threshing floor and God appears to Gideon and God says to Gideon, Hail, old man of valor. And Gideon's looking around like, Who? Who are you talking about? And God says, You. I want you to deliver my people from the Midianites. And, and Gideon says, Lord, you've got the wrong guy. I'm the least in my entire family. 
And my family is the least in all of the tribes of Israel. In other words, what he's saying to God, God, you must have messed up here because you've chosen somebody who's the bottom of the barrel. You got the wrong guy. But God showed Gideon God's sufficiency in the midst of Gideon's insufficiency. And then also there was Jeremiah. Remember Jeremiah when God called him to preach? He said, God, I'm just a child. I can't speak. And God said to Jeremiah, Jeremiah, don't say that you're just a child because before I formed you in the womb, I knew you and I consecrated you a priest to the nations. I'm going to put my words in your mouth and you're to go and speak to them. You're to tear down and you're to build up. Don't worry about it, Jeremiah. I'm going to take care of you and I'll be your strength. There was also Paul. Paul in Philippians chapter 3, he says, Hey, if somebody wants to boast, I could boast. I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. As to zeal, I persecuted the church. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. I was circumcised on the eighth day. But all of those things that I counted as gain for myself, I now count all of those things loss for the sake of knowing Christ. None of us are adequate. But we go in God's strength. Any good in a Christian's life is not due to our own wisdom or our own abilities, but it's due to God's amazing grace. Some of you no doubt read Oswald Chambers in your devotion time. Listen to what Oswald Chambers writes. He says, God can achieve his purpose either through the absence of human power and resources or the abandonment of reliance on them. All through history, God has chosen and used nobodies because their unusual dependence on him made possible the unique display of his power and grace. He chose and used somebodies only when they renounced dependence on their natural abilities and resources. Now again, quoting Hughes. Hughes tells a powerful illustration about Dr. Billy Graham going to Cambridge. The University of Cambridge uh, over in England. In August 1955, Canon H.K. Lucey of Durham, Durham, England, wrote a letter to the Times deploring Billy Graham's recent invitation to preach at Cambridge University. Billy Graham's approach, he argued, would be unthinkable before a university audience. He'd be laughed out of court. Dr. Graham, age 36 at the time, was quite intimidated. His biographer writes, Graham, ever insecure about his lack of advanced theological education, dreaded the meetings and feared that a poor showing might do serious harm to his ministry and affect which way the tide would turn in Britain. Had he been able to do so without a complete loss of face, he would have canceled the meetings or persuaded some better qualified man to replace him. Graham's arrival in Cambridge was quite unsettling to him. The meetings were held in Great St. Mary's, the university church at the epicenter of Cambridge. And as young Billy Graham sat in his Geneva gown and doctoral hood, every gallery and niche of the church was occupied. Graham preached for three nights, but the results were modest at best. His sermons were, by his own estimation, too academic. 
He knew that he was not getting through to the students' hearts. Then came the breakthrough. Following his third sermon, the day after his 37th birthday, Billy Graham set aside his university-focused sermons that he had prepared and he decided to preach simple sermons to ordinary souls. His own weakness plus the all-sufficient Christ and the transforming gospel along with the blessing of the Holy Spirit caught fire and the somewhat flat Cambridge meeting suddenly turned into a mighty move of the Spirit. Pastor and scholar John R.W. Stott wrote, History will begin to show but only eternity will finally reveal how much was accomplished during that week. That's what Paul's talking about in verse 5. He says in verse 5, Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us. But our sufficiency is from God. And again in verse 6, he reminds us that the new covenant is not like the old covenant. The old covenant was of the letter. Now, does that mean in some way that the old covenant was bad? No. As Paul wrote in Romans chapter 7, the old covenant was God's law. And God's law is holy and perfect and good. There's nothing wrong with God's law. But as Paul writes here in verse 6, the letter kills. That was the purpose of the law. God never gave the old covenant. He never gave the law for the purpose that man could be saved through the keeping of the law. He gave the law to show what God's standard is. God's standard is up here. It's holy and perfect and righteous. And as we see what God's standard is, we see where our lives match up and our lives are way down here. And when we see how far short we have come of God's standard, like Isaiah, we ought to say, woe is me, I'm undone. I'm unclean. I've sinned. And if I have to face God in my sin, there's going to be sure judgment and condemnation. And that's what the Bible says. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. God's law was given to us so that we would see that and cast ourselves upon God's mercy and grace. But the law was not given to save, it was given to reveal. It's like that mirror that you went into the bathroom this morning and you looked into the mirror to see what you needed to do to your bedhead to get ready for church. Now did the mirror, did the mirror itself Get you ready for church? No. The mirror just revealed where the flaws were and what you needed to go to work on. You know, the teenager looks into the mirror and he sees another pimple on his face and and he goes, oh, and he cries and moans and the mirror doesn't get rid of that pimple. The mirror just shows him where he needs to put the clear seal. Right? Right? That's the purpose of God's law. That's what the law does. 
And folks, what Paul is saying here, if all we ever did was read the law and stop right there, then what the law does is kill. It, it, it kills, it reveals that we've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But on the other hand, the Spirit gives life. The Spirit takes ordinary, simple people just like you and me and, and, and through us, Christ, cha Christ changes us and through us, He makes us ministers of the new covenant. And when God does that, all the glory goes to God. He's the only one that can get the glory because He's responsible for our salvation. It's not my work, but it's His work and what He did for me in Christ. I didn't do it. I didn't save myself. And so all the glory goes to Jesus Christ and to Jesus alone. A third mark of ministry. A Christian's ministry is a ministry revealing God's glory. Look at what he says in verse 7. He says, Now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had, uh, had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. A Christian's ministry is a ministry revealing God's glory. Paul has already said that we are ministers of the new covenant. And what he begins to do here, he begins to contrast our ministry with the ministry of Moses. Now Moses was one of the greatest of all of the Old Testament saints. But think about his ministry. As Moses ascended that mountain and he received the Ten Commandments, it was a ministry of glory because up on that mountain, who did Moses meet with? He met with God. And because of that, when he came off the mountain, the people couldn't even look at his face. It was radiant with the glory of God. However, as glorious as Moses' ministry was, and as radiant as his face was, Paul wants us to keep in mind that it was a fading glory. Now, why was it a fading glory? Well, as the book of Hebrews points out, the old covenant was passing away. It was temporary. Everything in the old covenant was pointing forward to what God was going to do in Christ. In fact, when you look at what Paul says here in verse 10, when you look, when you look now at the old covenant standing on this side of the cross... The old covenant doesn't look so great. Oh, it was great because it was instituted by God. But when you look at the Old Testament in light of the New Testament, all of a sudden the Old Testament loses its appeal. We love the Old Testament. We love the Jewish people because as Christians we stand on their shoulders. There's a continuity there. 
The new grows out of the old. We understand our New Testament because we have the Old Testament. If we had to pick up the Bible, if we had no exposure to any part of the Bible and somebody handed us a New Testament and that's all we'd ever heard of and we began reading it, Matthew 1.1, we would lose something because we would miss out on everything that the Old Testament did to set the table for the New Testament. And so there's continuity between the two covenants, the old and the new. But Paul's wanting us to see here, while there is continuity, there is also contrast. The new is so much better. In fact, as the book of Hebrews again points out, once the new came... The old is obsolete. And that's why it's so sad when you think of Jews who are still going into the synagogues and they're trying to appeal to God on the basis of the old. The old is obsolete. And so Paul wants us to understand how privileged and blessed we are. If we hold Moses up as a hero of our faith, and we should, how much more are we blessed to live on this side of the cross? You and I need to understand in God's economy of things this glorious ministry that we have. We have a ministry revealing God's glory far greater than anything Moses had. You and I need to see that blessing. I want you to think of some of the other contrasts. To be a priest in the Old Covenant, you had to be of a particular family. You had to be of the Levites. You had to be a, a descendant of Aaron. Under the New Covenant, though, we are all ministers. In Exodus 19, God met with the Israelites at the foot of the mountain and proclaimed that they were to be a kingdom of priests. In 1 Peter 2, Peter reminds us that we are a holy nation of people proclaiming God's glory. We once were not a people, but now we are the people of God. When does this happen? This happens when God removes the veil. When did God remove that veil in your case? I guess I should back up and ask the question, has God removed the veil? Or are you still just hearing blah, 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 wah, wah, wah? Or has God removed the veil? And now, boy, the Bible, it just makes so much sense. And and Jesus, you look to Jesus and, and it's just so clear to you because God has removed the veil. When did that happen to you? Well, once it happens, then you're able to enjoy this glorious ministry, proclaim the word of God to others that the veil might be lifted for them. Last thing I want you to see this morning. We have a ministry that goes from glory to glory. Look at what he begins saying in verse 12. Since we have such a hope, we're very bold. Not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. 
For to this day when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Look at what he says in verse 16. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now look at verse 18. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Now folks, what Paul is doing in these verses is he's teaching us a whole new lesson about what happened back in the book of Exodus. If you were to go back in the book of Exodus beginning with chapter 32 and start to read about what happened when Moses went up on that mountain and he came down with the veil you would not get everything from the book of Exodus, what Paul is talking about here. This is known as a midrash. When a New Testament writer, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, sheds new light on the Old Testament. And that's what Paul is doing here. He's enlarging our understanding of what happened in Exodus. And he's pointing out to us that Moses would come off the mountain. He'd put a veil over his face. The people cannot behold the glory of God uh, radiating off of his face. But Paul wants us to see that something else was going on too. Moses was trying to shield from the people that the glory on his face was fading. It was a fading glory. And the veil would keep the Israelites from seeing that. It was to hide the fading glory. And so Paul uses this as an analogy. And then he says to this day when the Old Testament is read, this veil remains in place. You don't see the full glory that never fades until you come to Christ. And then when you come to Christ, the veil is removed and you see God's glory in all of its richness and its fullness. It's like one Jewish writer spoke about. He's a Jewish writer who's come to faith in Christ and he says, Now that I'm a Christian, I can't believe what all I was missing as a Jew. He said, now that I've come to Christ, I read my Old Testament and boy, it's like Jesus just jumps off the page. He said, the whole Bible just fits together, ties together like a glove. He said, I can't believe that I went all of these years and I didn't see it because there was a veil. I've had people in the church tell me the same thing. Pastor, before I became a Christian, I'd read the Word of God. I just didn't, it didn't mean anything to me. But when I became a Christian, I opened my Bible, and it's all of a sudden like I finally see what it is God is trying to say. And Paul's point is we don't have to be like Moses who wore a veil so that people would not see the fading glory because his point is, in Jesus Christ, the glory never fades. In fact, the Christian life just gets better and better. And so we don't have to worry about a fading glory. 
We are a people who are now being transformed. As we grow in the Lord, what people are supposed to see is the Christian going from glory to glory. The word he uses of transformed in verse 18 is the word from which we get our word metamorphosis. A caterpillar spins a cocoon and goes inside. Comes out one day a butterfly. A tadpole becomes a frog. There's a metamorphosis, a transformation that takes place in a believer's life. A believer is saved out of a life of sin. The veil is lifted. We see the glory of God in Christ and we're saved. But it doesn't stop there. Now as Christians, as we read the Word of God and we grow in our faith, day to day to day, what is God doing? God is conforming us more and more To the image of Christ. Your Christian life just gets sweeter and sweeter and sweeter. And the Lord means more and more and more to you. You see you're being transformed from glory to glory. And that's what's supposed to take place. Now sin and apathy in our lives can hinder that. The Ephesians, you'll remember Jesus said to them in Revelation chapter 2, you've lost your first love. There was no passion in their life for the Lord anymore. The Lord didn't see the passion in their lives. They didn't see it. The veil had been lifted, but they weren't living like it. Are you living like it? You see, as we trudge through this world, we get mud on our feet, so to speak, don't we? Because we still are faced with the old nature. We've got the new nature now because we're in Christ. But we've still got the old nature that we battle against. The flesh and the world and the devil. And as we go through this world, we can take our eyes off of Jesus. We can even let some sin creep into our life. And like I say, it's kind of like we got mud on our shoes. And what we need to do is get back to living clean and pure before God, being in His Word and allowing the Spirit of God to use the Word of God to transform our lives from glory to glory. Oh, that doesn't mean the Christian life gets easier and easier because we face trial and tribulation. But through it all, we see God working in us, conforming us to the image of Christ so that five years after we become a believer, we're so much more grateful to God what He's done in our lives than the day after we became a Christian. From glory to glory. That's how the Christian life's supposed to be. Is that happening in you? Is that happening in you? I could be preaching to somebody this morning, the veil has never been removed. It's never been removed. You get up, you come to church, you bring your Bible, go through all the right motions. But you know what? All of this still, I mean, you just don't get it. 
Now, I don't mean that derogatory because, folks, that's the place and position we were all in at one time. You go through all the motions, but you just don't get it. Because the light hadn't come on. Is that you this morning? Your prayer needs to be, God, lift the veil. I don't know what he's talking about. I want to know. I want to be converted. I want to be a new creation in Christ. Save my soul. Folks, that is an entirely different thing from just saying a prayer at the back of an evangelistic tract. Praise God for those prayers at the back of an evangelistic track. But you can say a prayer at the back of an evangelistic track and be no more changed than when you started the words. Have you ever been converted? Say, God, do that in me. The veil needs to be taken away. I'd love to pray with you. Maybe others in here looking for a new church home. We'd love to be your church home. You step out and come forward. Maybe some believers, you know that you became a new creation in Christ. You know exactly what I'm talking about. The veil coming off, new creation in Christ, you were changed. But you have got mud on your shoes. And you need to get clean before God. The glory is not what it should be. Do business with God.